because they believed that they were going to, without God, achieve a worldwide utopia, but that doing so would require eliminating all of the capitalists. And atheistic communism produced at least 100 million deaths in the 20th century. Why? Because of what they believed about God. That where God does not exist, then man must take his place, and you must have a ruler to govern society, and society becomes absolute and totalitarian. Why? Because of what they believe about God or the absence thereof. This morning, we are going to start a new series. You may have noticed we're not in Genesis. Uh, I'm going to call this series, This We Believe, because it's going to take us through the church's statement of faith, and, and we're going to go a point at a time, one week on each point of our doctrinal statement. And I believe we need to do this, not just so that we can know what we believe and why, but so that we can understand what difference it makes in our everyday, individual, personal lives. Because the most important thoughts that we will ever think are what we think when we think about God because they will determine what we think and how we behave about every other area of our life. And so I want to begin by talking about God because the Bible begins with God. Remember, in the beginning, God. And so in the beginning, we're going to start with God because God's existence predates everything else, predates the Bible, predates uh, the creation of human beings, predates everything else, and we're going to start then with God, but we're going to use the Bible to derive what it is that we should think about God and what difference that makes and how it impacts our lives. So we're going to look at this morning God's nature, God's character, and God's purpose. What's he doing uh, so when we talk about God's nature, what we're, what we're talking about, we're answering a question, what kind of God is out there? Uh, and many of you know there are lots of different answers to that, to that question. The pantheistic answer, which is the answer given by things like Shintoism and Taoism and Hinduism and Buddhism and these kinds of things, are, there's a pantheistic answer that everything that exists is God. If you've seen, how many of y'all have seen Star Wars? Okay, not the later three movies, those don't count. The original three are the only ones worth watching, okay? But you will see this, okay? You will see, if you watch Empire Strikes Back, you'll see Luke Skywalker down in the swamp uh, with Yoda, the little Muppet, you know, and they'll be talking, and he will say, and Yoda will say, Luke, the force is all around you. It is in the rocks, it's in the trees, you know, and he can levitate stuff and move stuff around and float the plane out of the, out of the swamp and all that, right? Why? Because he believes that everything is connected. George Lucas believes this, that everything is connected, that uh, the whole universe from rocks to trees to chairs to carpet fibers hums with the divine energy, Oh, you know, you've got to tap in, okay? That's how you do it, right? You make, your, make yourself a closed loop and you tap into the divine energy, okay? And that's a very different sort of God than the one we would affirm and believe in. We believe in a God who is personal, not an impersonal force, not an energy field, 
uh, we also don't believe what the Muslims believe, which is that there is a God who is a unitary person who has 99 names but is, and is merciful but is not loving. Polytheists and Mormons believe that there are multiple gods of varying degrees of power and who also uh, vary in their level of morality and the things they can accomplish. So you've got the God over the earth and the God over this planet and that planet and so forth if you're a Mormon. Uh, you've got, uh, if you're a polytheist, you've got the river God, the tree God, the, the mountain God, the sky God, the earth God, the fertility God, the home and hearth God, the whatever, gods. Go to India, you've got 300 million different gods. What kind of God is there? Well, we say, first of all, that there is one God and that there is no one like him. None like him. The fact that there is one God and that there is nothing else in all creation that exists that is like him is the, one of the central affirmations of the Scripture. In fact, if you are a Jewish person, and we would affirm the Jewish scriptures as part of the Bible, their central proclamation, the one that they, they put in their tephilim, that they put on their forehead or on their arm, starts with this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the verse right after that says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Why? Because the Lord is the only God. Yahweh is the only God. Uh, look at the first commandment. Remember? What is it? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods in addition to me, before me. In other words, when you go to, to worship me, you don't have like, you don't bring Buddha along. You don't have a statue of Ganesh that you also pray to. You don't have, I don't want to be nasty, but you don't have any statues of any people from past Christian history that you also pray with. Okay? You are to have no other gods before me. Why does God say that? Because there are no other beings in all the universe who can make a claim to being deserving to be worshipped like he does. This is what God says in Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. There's a lot more I could share, obviously. The whole Old Testament, even whole books of the Old Testament are written around this idea that, that God is one, that there is no other and that he alone is worthy of worship, and anything else is just a pretender. But besides the central confession of Scripture that there is only one God, there is also this other track that, about God's nature, that his unity is, per, is a personal, relational unity. That at, that at the center of God's being... God is not just personal, but tri-personal, that he exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I could go through all, there's, I, I've taught a, like, 15-week class on this, um, but, and I won't um, <laughs> uh, this morning. We don't have time to be here that long, but 
What I will say is this, all through the Bible, all through both Old and New Testament is this testimony that God's unity is a relational composite unity. Even in the names that God gives himself, he calls himself Elohim, the mighty gods, literally. And Adonai, my masters. Okay? Plural unity. And Jesus says, if you get your Bible, go to John 14. Okay? I want to show you this. This is, this is amazing stuff. Okay? John 14, Jesus teaches this. Okay? In other words, the, the early church fathers did not make this up sometime around, the, you know, the ascension of Constantine in 325 at Nicaea. All right? Jesus taught this stuff. And it's true. He says this. This is the interaction between Philip and, and Jesus, where Jesus is talking about the Father. And this is what Philip says, Lord, this is verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now skip down here a few, uh, few verses. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper who will be with you forever, even the spirit of, the tr of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that there is a mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son. He says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. That there's a unity between the Father and Jesus, the Son. And then, later on, in just a couple of verses later, he says, I'm going to send from the Father and from me another one that I'm going to call the Helper, the Spirit of Truth. And when he uses that word another, it's a, it's a, it's a unique, interesting word in Greek. It, 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 maybe it doesn't come off this way in English, but there are two ways to say another in Greek. One of them is the word heteros, which we all understand. It means another of a different kind. Another of a different kind. So, in other words, uh, not an apple, an orange. Heteros, another of a different kind. But the word that Jesus uses is the word alas, which means another of the same kind. And so, when he says, I'm going to send the Spirit, what he is saying is not, I'm going to send you back, if I'm an orange, orange juice, in other words, me in a different form. Okay, with a different appearance. And I'm not going to send you, if I'm an orange, an apple, because that's another of a different kind. I'm going to send you someone else with the same characteristics as me, another 
helper who will be with you forever. And so Jesus himself teaches that the, that the Trinity, that we confess, that God is triune and that he is a relational unity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the reality of who God is. We didn't make this up. Uh, it's not just different masks by which, or, or different ways that God operates. It's three distinct persons in the one God, which means that he is fundamentally relational, that he is personal, not an impersonal force. Uh, in fact, you can say that it's true that God doesn't just have relationships, but that he is relationships in a certain fundamental way. And when the Spirit, this is, this is the really cool part. Think about this, okay? So you've got the Father and the Son and the Spirit that all mutually indwell one another, and therefore there is unity between them. What happens when a person believes in Christ? The Spirit comes and indwells them. And so in a certain way, when you are uh, adopted into God's family, you are, in a certain way, brought into the very life of God himself. You become, as Peter says in Second Peter chapter 1, a partaker of the divine nature. Amazing. Really cool, actually. I don't know if anybody who's got anything better than that. All right? We can compare notes later. But that's about as cool as it gets, that you actually enter into the same kind of relationship with God that Jesus has. Amazing. Now, I should probably just stop right there and just say, all right, let's pray. We'll just go to a time of reflection on the majestic truth of God's nature and who he is and our relationship with him. But I'm not. I'm just going to go on. All right. Uh, the Bible gives us a lot more to praise God for about who he is. Um, and, and we could go on again for a whole long list of stuff. But in our doctrinal statement, we affirm just eight things about God's character. Number one, that he is the creator. First verse in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made it all. There is nothing that exists in the universe which God did not make or have a hand in. So aardvarks to zebras, protons, uh, quarks, black holes, stars, planets, angels, human beings. He made everything that exists. All were created by God and all of them were meant to point us to him. Psalm 8 3 and 4 says this, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? The psalmist is saying, look here, all as I look around at the creation, everything points to you. And that's exactly what it's designed to do. When you see a, when you see a deer out in the field, Besides lunch, you should think, wow, God made that. Okay? When you look at your hand and all that you're able to do with it, they can't make a robot that can do this with the level of fine detail that a human hand 
even in the least skilled of us can do. And it's all meant to point us to the fact that God made it in all of its intricacy and detail. God is also holy, which means that He is utterly separate from sin and evil. He has, he, he has nothing to do with sin and evil, and He cannot have anything to do with sin and evil. In fact, because of sin and evil, His holiness requires Him to bring judgment on those who are evil. You see this in Isaiah 6. The Lord himself appears in the temple, and Isaiah is there, and he sees, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord holy and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and there were seraphs. The word seraph means burning one. These angels that are so bright, they look like they're on fire, and they have six wings, and they're flying through the temple. And with two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they are flying. And one called out to the others, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of the armies, Yahweh Sabaoth, as we sing in A Mighty Fortress, right? The Lord of the armies, the Lord of the heavenly, heavenly host. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it says, at the sound of his voice, the foundations of the temple were shaken. And Isaiah, who has been crying out for the previous five chapters, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you who put sweet for bitter and light for darkness. Woe to you who call evil good and good evil. Woe to you, may God judge you. In his holiness. And then he stands before God in the temple and he sees the angels that God has made and he sees God himself. And you know what he says? Woe is me. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. And we think of holiness as kind of this, you know, kind of the fact that God is just really different from us. But what it means is, is that when evil comes before God, even a tiny bit, it flees from his presence. And sin and sinners are utterly shamed when they stand before God and need cleansing. And that's what Isaiah gets. He is holy. God is eternal, which means that there is never a time when he did not exist or will not exist. He is the one who, Revelation 1.8 says, is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He is loving, which means that he is self-sacrificial in bringing about good for other people. And I could spend six months, literally, easy, with one hand tied behind my back, six months talking about what it means that God is loving. But 
In fact, in fact, there's at least five major ways that the Bible talks about God being loving and how that is expressed. But I'm just going to highlight one, Romans 5.8. Remember this verse? If you're an Awana leader, you need to learn this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What's that about? It means that while we were still rebels, while we were still traitors, while we were still uh, in absolute uh, sin against God, that even then, while we were enemies of God, he loved us and he sent Christ to make the payment for our sin. God sacrifices himself to bring about good for those he's created. Uh, that's what we mean also when we talk about grace, that God gives us not what we deserve, but what, based on his love, he decides to give to us. We are given what is not naturally ours by the God who loves us. Now, this next one, under, in recent years, has come under, come under some attack from some... Um, um, somewhat, sort of, kind of evangelical guys, uh, Greg Boyd and Clark Pinnock, have talked about what they call the openness of God, that he does not or maybe cannot know the future. We would say, no. The Scripture affirms that God does possess ultimate knowledge about all things. Uh, the theological term for that is omniscience, that he knows everything is possible to know. Uh, Isaiah 46, 8 to 10 says it this way, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. And these, those verses also touch on another of God's characteristics, his sovereign power, or what theologians call his omnipotence. That means that God is able to do all things which are possible and consistent with his character. All things. There is no one who can overrule him, no one who can, with their ability, make something that God has determined to bring about cease to happen. God is sovereign over all things, and his purposes are always accomplished. Finally, we believe that God is infinitely perfect, meaning that there is no area of moral excellence or power in which God is lacking, or no greater extent to which God could embody goodness. He's perfect. James says it this way, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, in whom there is no darkness or shifting shadow. Everything good comes from him, and he is the source and the definition of everything that is good and perfect. Now, finally... I want to talk just a few minutes about God's purpose. So we've seen who God is, what he is like, but we also believe that he has a purpose. 
uh, and that he is accomplishing it both with his creation and through his creatures. And we believe that that purpose has three aspects. Number one, that he, his, one of his purposes is the redemption of a people for himself. And we believe that from eternity past, before there was time, God knew all that would happen. If you look at uh, the book of Revelation, verse, chapter 13, verse 8, uh, it describes two kinds of people, those who worship false gods and those who do not. And the reason that those who worship the Lord do so is because their names are written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And it says that their names were written there before the foundation of the world. Now, that may blow your, blow your doors off, okay? Hope it does. If you have questions about that, see me afterwards, <laughs> all right? But that God's purpose in creation from before there was time has been the redemption of people for himself. And that people would freely choose to rebel against him, but that from some of those rebels, God would choose those that would be his, and he would redeem them from their sin and bring them into his glorious kingdom. And if you are a person who has believed in Jesus Christ, then guess what? You are part of the reason the world was made. Because God had as a purpose and a plan your redemption. Now, not just yours. Don't get a big head. But, but your redemption was a part of God's purpose and plan. Another purpose is he purposed to make everything new. He knew when he created the world that sin was going to come in and it was going to destroy and mar and mess up everything that he had made. And so God had as a purpose, well, it's going to get messed up, but I'm going to make it all new again. I'm not just going to redeem people. I'm going to redeem the whole creation and the way that all of creation works and put it back to right. So we read my, my, probably my two favorite chapters in the entire Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. And I'm not going to read them all to you, but I'll read you just a little snippet out of this. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, that is, God himself, said, Behold, I am making everything new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He has a purpose. Not just to redeem us, but to redeem everything and make it new 
once more. Why? Why would God be about redeeming people and making new what has been spoiled? The Bible's answer is simple, for his own glory. Moses, in writing Abraham's story, you remember chapter 12? Chapter 11 is about the Tower of Babel, about people who are going to make a great name for themselves. And Abraham is called out of Ur of the Chaldees in uh, chapter 12, and God says, I'm going to make you a great name. Why? So that you will be a blessing to all the earth to make my name great, to bring me glory. Moses was not allowed to enter into the land because he, he stole part of the glory of the miracle that God did through him. And God said, I will not share my glory with another. His purpose is always his own glory. Paul tells the Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for what purpose? The glory of God. And Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and to what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, these are just a, just a smattering of verses picked pretty much at random out of the Scriptures. But I hope what you see is that God's purpose is to bring glory to himself. And you think, well, maybe that's a little egotistical. But here's the thing. If we really understand who God is and what he is like and what he is doing in bringing about redemption, then we realize that the only purpose of existence must be to glorify God and to bring him honor because he is the one thing, the one being in all the universe who is most worthy of glory. I mean, think about for just a second the fact that you, as a human being, are born in sin, which you then act on as soon as you are morally able. I mean, how many of you ever had to teach your kids how to lie? You ever have to teach them how to scream to get their own way? I mean, we never pass that lesson on, I'll assure you. Okay, that comes hardwired into the system, doesn't it? And you know what? You come hardwired as a rebel against God, and you, you act on that nature as soon as you can. And God takes us as rebels against him and as sinners and as really traitors because God did not make us to rebel. He made us to love and serve and bring him honor. And he took us and adopted us into his own family, brought us into by the, by the Holy Spirit and the blood of the Son, the very life of God himself. How about that? That's just one thing you can glorify God for. Amen? And if you really start to lay hands on what God has done for you by his grace and love and sovereign power and purpose and glory, all of a sudden you start to go, you know, must be, this must be why I'm here, to bring glory to this, this being who has loved me so much. Now, uh, I've given you a lot of content. Some of you probably feel like you have tried to get water out of a fire hose, and if so, that's okay. All right, you've got lots of time to catch up on this. 
This is just really a summary of what the Bible affirms about God. But let me explain to you why this is important and significant and why this matters, what we believe about God for us. Because it means that the universe is not random, number one. It means that the universe is not random. If you do not believe in this sort of God, what you have to believe essentially is that everything just happens. That there's nobody driving the ship. That there's no one at the switch. And things, life and, every, and existence and everything basically came up on the roll of the dice at Monte Carlo. Or as uh, George Gaylord Simpson, the famous paleontologist, said, that man is the product of random material processes which did not have him in mind. He was not thought of. He is an accident. And what the Bible says is that the universe is not random, that there is a sovereign holy, eternal, loving, powerful God of limitless knowledge and power who has a plan and a purpose and that part of his purpose involved you and me. That you didn't just show up because of a random combination of molecules, but you have a plan and a purpose. It also means that evil is not going to have the last word. You know, I don't know about you, but, you know, you come to a day like September 11th or, or you go to a hospital bed and you watch those beeps get wider and wider apart and you all of a sudden see the flat line and you hear that ee. Or someone who was close to you that you loved and sacrificed for betrays you and hurts you deeply. Or someone murders someone that you are close to. Or someone that you love or maybe even you yourself is raped and killed. Or 19 people turn planes into missiles and burn 3,000 people to death in an act of evil that is still unspeakable. If God is not there, and He is not this kind of God, then you have to believe that ultimately evil triumphs. That evil has the last word and finally wins. But according to the Bible... This sort of God is the God who is there. And He is the one who has a purpose and a plan, and He will make everything new. And there will not be mourning or crying or death or suffering or destruction or evil anymore. It'll all be wiped out and judged, and God will let his holiness reign in fullness over the entire universe and bring glory to himself forever and ever with you and I. That's why this matters. What kind of world do we live in? 
a kind ruled by a holy God, or a random universe in which stuff just takes place. And if you wind up on the muddy end of the stick, well, sorry about your luck. No, we live in a universe controlled by a holy God who loves us, who is redeeming a people for himself, who will make all things new and will put to flight all that is evil. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are sovereign, that you are holy, that you are eternal, that you are relational supremely so that we can say with the Apostle John, God is love. Not that he acts with love, but that he is, that fundamentally in himself is a relationship of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we, when we enter into that relationship with you by faith are indwelt by the holy spirit and are brought into the very life of god itself father these things are too wonderful for us to know really to understand to get our arms around father we love you and we are thankful that you are glorifying yourself in us that you have redeemed us for yourself that you have a plan and a purpose, that even in the midst of all the evil that we see around us at times, that you are working even that together for our good because we have been called according to your purpose and your plan, and you will put to flight all that is evil in the world and bring glory to yourself forever. Father, we thank you for these truths. We pray that we would live in light of the knowledge of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.